Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Sentimental Garbage, the podcast where we talk about the chiclet that made us who we are. My name is Karen O'Donoghue, and I'm a writer, a novelist, and a gradually decaying boarding house. Joining me is author, podcaster, and deep suspicion of Clapham Junction, Andy Miller. Hello. Hello. Deep suspicion of Clapham Junction, though. How, I, if anything, I harbour warm feelings towards Clapham you? Junction. You're the only one. <laughs> All right. Well, that's for someone's got to, haven't they? Do you do you live in perpetual fear that someone, a woman, will fall over in Clapham Junction and you will be responsible for her? <laughs> <laughs> How did you know? You're very, you're very perceptive. I just, you just walked in here and I knew, yeah. I knew yeah, I instantly. Look like, I look like that kind of guy. <laughs> Uh, well, today we're talking about A Fortnight in September by R.C. Sheriff. Um, as many of our listeners will already know by your very distinctive brogue, uh, you host Backlisted, which I'm sure many listeners here also listen to. I, I co-host Backlisted co-host. with John Mitchinson. Hi, John, if you're listening. <laughs> it's weird doing this on my own. It is It is weird doing one of these, uh, an old book without uh, my old friend, Mitch, sitting next to me. But is it your instinct to say where we give old books? What's your tagline again? Uh, we we give old, old, uh, new life to old books. There we but go. But he normally says that, so that's why I fluffed it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yes. You, I, gi- you give new life to old books. We, we do, give we new life to woman books, generally, uh, to use a very vague concept. Um, what made you pick this for this podcast as opposed to your own? Okay, so I've chosen The Fortnight in September by R.C. Sheriff, which was a novel that was published in 1931 uh, by the publisher Victor Gollantz. And I was going to choose a different book. I mm. was going to choose The Soul of Kindness by Elizabeth Taylor, not the actress. The other Elizabeth the Taylor. The other Elizabeth Taylor. Uh, and we talked about it a bit, didn't we, about mm. potentially doing it. I had uh, bought the book. I was excited about it. It's one of my favourite of Elizabeth Taylor's novels. Mm-hmm. And it seemed totally to fit your brief. Mm-hmm. So I was all good to go. And then after three years of trying, we finally scheduled a backlisted episode about <gasps> Elizabeth Taylor, a different novel. And so I thought, well, I can't. Yeah, poten- you can't double potentially dip. these could come out in the same week, mm, and I've mm. only got so much material on Elizabeth Taylor. I don't <laughs> mind, you know, much as I love her, uh, I love her books. So instead, I I, I chose um, the fortnight in September, and I chose the fortnight in September um, because this book was recommended to me about three years ago by Elizabeth Day. Mm, yes, she came onto Batlisted, and she was a guest, and there were two books that she wanted to do. And we ended up doing her other choice. And her other choice was The Weather in the Streets by Rosamund Lehman. Mm-hmm. I don't know if uh, you've ever featured that or you read it. No, I haven't. It's an absolutely wonderful book. And then while we, when, we've, when we recorded the episode, I was saying, oh, I'm sorry we couldn't do The Fortnight in September. And she said to me, oh, you should read it. It's about a family from the South London suburbs who go on holiday to Bognor for a fortnight and nothing happens. Nothing happens. And I said, sold. <laughs> So you're a big fan of books where nothing happens. I do like a book where nothing happens. In fact, I found a quote from Elizabeth Taylor. 
Oh, wow. Saying in an interview in the New York Herald Tribune, I'm always disconcerted when I'm asked for my life story, for nothing sensational, thank heavens, has ever happened. I dislike much travel or change of environment and prefer the days, each with its own domestic flavour, to come round almost the same week after week. Only in such circumstances can I find time or peace in which to write. I also very much like reading books in which practically nothing ever happens. Mm. Well, is me, as the young, <laughs> it's as the me. young people say. <laughs> uh, so, which is a very long-winded way of saying I read The Fortnight in September about three years ago and I absolutely loved it. And um, I felt when the opportunity came to talk about it with you, Caroline, that it sort of was the perfect midpoint between this podcast mm. and Backlisted. You know, there isn't really an- – I can't think of another novel like it. And we part of our fun that we'll have today is, is seeing if we can answer that question. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm at the beginning of an English lesson now. Let's see if we all together can answer this question. (laughs) What does Shakespeare mean by comedy? Yeah, no, come on. No, no, truly. I'm my head. Um, What's interesting is, um, so uh, to talk about the very insular world of book podcasts, once again, um, you and I were on corresponding episodes of Your Booked with the lovely Daisy Buchanan. (laughs) And on which it was like one week after another. And you began with, I love Anita Bruckner. And then I followed up with, I fucking hate Anita Bruckner. Well, and and in fact, Daisy loves Anita Bruckner as well. Yes, so, so I'm outnumbered. So you are outnumbered. <laughs> but I am one of those people who loves things to. Ha- I love plot. I mm-hmm. I need lots of things to happen in books. Um, every every review I received for my novel had some feature of she overstuffs with plot too much because I just want more things to keep happening. And so it's incredibly rare for me to read something where the selling point is almost nothing happens. <laughs> and I loved it. And I read it, tw- I've read it actually twice in in about five days. Yeah. Well, kind of just like I had so many highlights going through Kindle and just like going back to look at them and then just reading the rest of the chapter. So I've sort of read it piecemeal twice now, you, you know? know what? I'm absolutely delighted. It's... I could not be more delighted. <laughs> but the thing is, I don't know anyone. I, mean, I literally don't know anyone who's read this book who isn't blown away. Maybe not because it's not that kind of book, but who yeah. doesn't love it? Because it's so unusual and it's written with such an easygoing clarity, yet yeah. it manages to be so quietly profound about, you know. And generally, if someone des- describes a book about quiet, like, and says the word quietly profound, you know how like there are words on jackets that you know are for you, like, and for me, it's always like dark, edgy, sexy women, <laughs> like yeah. that's what draws me yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. And when someone says quietly profound, I'm like, and we move on to the and sci-fi yet, and YA section of Waterstones. <laughs> and yet, you wouldn't disagree, right? No, I absolutely there would. You not. Go, and see? I adored it. And I'm going to do a quick plot summary because, <laughs> which again. I really struggled to lengthen out this plot summary um, because, again, nothing fucking happens. But I'm going to try anyway. Right. The Stevens are a lower middle class family living in South London in the 1930s. They have a cat, a canary, two grown children, an 11 year old son still in school. The highlight of the Stevens family's. The highlight of. Sorry. I'm going to try that one more time. The highlight of the Stevens year. <laughs> Leave all this in. This, this is, is lovely. Gold. This is gold. This is nothing much happening at yeah, its best. This is gold. Go on. The highlight of the Stevens year is their two week holiday in Bognor Regis. We meet them on the eve of what will very likely be their last family holiday together, as their oldest children, Mary and Dick, are starting to become independent adults themselves. 
What follows is a day-to-day account of how they spend their summer holiday. This is a novel, again, where nothing happens, about incredibly ordinary people who... And again, and I knew that um, R.C. Sheriff was a playwright because I did a quick Google of him beforehand. Mm. And uh, I hate plays. Full stop. I hate plays. I hate plays. <laughs> I hate. And, and no, I don't hate plays. I just say that to people I know who work in plays to antagonize okay, them. But I'm not the first person to go to see a play because I assume that like kitchen sink dramas about ordinary people will end in someone in jail and someone pregnant. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And that kind, that's sort of, you know what I'm talking about. I... I, I struggle with going to the theatre mm. I actually think I prefer reading plays uh, same actually yeah them and then having somebody else's choices of line reading and setting imposed on my reading by going to the theatre yeah right I'd rather happily read plays but this is a book about normal ordinary yeah. people who have this this nobility this wonderful pleasantness about them but doesn't simplify them. They're simple, but they're not simplified, if you know what I mean. There's these depths and levels of anxiety and just knotted fear of things that don't happen or even if they did happen, wouldn't be terrible. And yet you're living in these people's heads so deeply that for so for the, the first hundred pages of the book is this family's journey from their house in Dulwich to the train station. And there are so many bits along a journey. And anyone who's ever gone on a journey anywhere uh, knows this feeling of like, okay, well, if I don't make this train, then I'll have to get this train. If I don't cross here and if somebody, you know, interrupts me on my journey here, uh, then this will happen and will throw off the whole journey. And they're just, there's this constant, constant knot of anxiety. Oh, well, it's a good thing we got this seat on the train. Oh, God, but now that I have this seat on the train, uh, now I might be open to a baby talking to me. They're, <laughs> you know? they're like, they're, it's worth saying that they've been, I'm going to read a little bit in a minute. Yeah, but they've, please do. They've, they've been on holiday to the same place and stayed in the same place for nearly 20 years. Yeah. And so they have a, the father in a very paternalistic role you know, kind of benign paternalism, mm. uh, has a set idea of uh, the person, the, the canary goes to one person and somebody comes yeah. in to look after the cat and they get to Clapham Junction Station at a particular time. Uh, they know all the stops on the way. There's a fantastic description of travelling out of the suburbs of South London on mm. the train into the countryside and then on into Bognor. And as you say, they don't get to Bognor. This is a 300-and-something-page novel. They don't arrive in Bognor on their holiday till page 100. And it flies. It's incredible, isn't it? It's, it's absolute, how is that possible? I, well, I looked at this again today and yesterday, and what I thought was, this is even better than I remembered it being, mm. that ha- quite how Sheriff manages to make the thing... Um, bounce along in a way that you you're almost sorry when they get to Bogner because the division of character is so perfectly done that you he dots between those I'm going to say four five six characters it depends mm. who you consider to be the protagonists mm. uh, but you have Mr and Mrs Stevens you have the three children Dick Mary and Ernie and you have their neighbours as well there's a fantastic bit where Mary goes to drop the canary oh, off with the old lady painful. who lives yeah. on her own, right? Mm. And what I love about Sheriff's writing, it's present here and it's present in the other novels that he wrote in the 1930s, which we might talk a little bit about, is he has, just as you were saying, Caroline, um, 
He doesn't patronise these characters. He doesn't rise them up, raise them up too high, and he doesn't look down on them. He has, a, as a writer, he has a tremendous and very unusual for this period generosity of spirit mm. towards ordinary people without belittling them. Mm. So the context of this book, we're in the middle of modernism when this is published. There's a terrific book by John Carey that was published about 25 years ago called The Intellectuals and the Masses, which runs through uh, the great writers of that time, T.S. Eliot, Virginia Woolf, etc., and shows you how time and again they are very snobbish in their attitudes towards quote-unquote ordinary people who Mm. live in the suburbs. They hate the suburbs. You know, the suburbs are these creeping places of uh, conformity. It's one of the most common sort of latter-day criticisms of Virginia Woolf in particular, I think. Yeah, but also you will find that. I wrote a long uh, piece on Boundless, which um, people can find via my website, about how those attitudes carry on right through till today. You know, I could point you at several authors, Julian Barnes's most recent novel, Blake Morrison's most recent novel, which use suburbia as a shorthand for smallness. Yeah. You know, smallness of outlook, slightly common people Mm. who should know their place but don't. If we go back to Howard's End, it's the character of Leonard Bast in Howard's End who, spoilers, uh, is killed at the end of the novel when a bookcase falls on top of him. A symbolic (laughs) moment of being punished for his presumptuousness. Anyway, I thought I might just read why, uh, what they like so much about Bogner. Uh, Bogner, which is anyone who's listening to this who doesn't know, is a resort on the south coast of England. Which I have... uh, Have you ever been there? No, but since reading this, my (laughs) booking.com... Cookies are through the room. Oh, my God. I have looked at so many seaside boarding houses, Andy. <laughs> so funny. Right, OK, here we go. Right. And Mrs. Stevens is thinking this to herself, uh, the, the matriarch of this family. It had always been Bogner. Ever since, on her honeymoon, her pale eyes had first glimpsed the sea. Her father had had a sister who lived on a farm. And scorning holidays himself, he had sent the children there, year in, year out, until this daughter had met her man and married him. They had often talked of a change, of Brighton, Bex Hill, even Lowestoft. Even Lowestoft. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's so it's exquisite. Brighton, where I was a student, Bex Hill, where my mum lives, Lowestoft, where I've never been, but the rock group The Darkness come from. There you are, I'm annotating this as I go along. <laughs> but Bogner always won in the end. If anything, it held them stronger every year, there were associations, sentiments, the ink stain on the sitting room tablecloth which Dick made as a little boy, the little ornament that Mary had made by gluing seashells on a card, which had been presented to Mrs Huggett at the end of one holiday, that's the landlady, and was always on the sitting room mantelpiece when they arrived each year. There was the stuffed barbell on the landing which they called Mr Richards because it was like a milkman they once had in Dulwich, and many other little ties that would be sadly broken. Um, The eye for detail is absolutely fantastic. Detail of character, detail of setting. And that's one of the things that in the first 100 pages of the book is going on. Mm. You are being, you're having sketched before you the life of a suburban family as it would have been recognised in 1931. And that, in and of itself, 
I know I make this sound like some kind of mass observation project, but it's so unusual and it's done so well that I sort of feel everyone ought to read it because you won't find this in any other novel. I mean, unless you're going to spring one on me. I absolutely don't. And what's interesting is like um, it's been said in um, sort of reviews of it and uh, R.C. Sheriff said it himself that he uh, almost thought about characterising it as a children's novel. Yeah. And it, it does feel like those early puffin books about like children from the city who are going out to the um out to the seaside. It feels like a very like K Webb presided yes, over that's project. A very good point. You know? Yes, I agree with you completely. Yeah. And what's so great about that, and it, you, and when you're reading it, you get that feeling that you get, you know, when you, you go back to your sort of your old childhood bedroom and you take down one of your Roald Dahls or something and you're like, oh, God, I'm just going to sort of, mm, I'm going to cozy up with this now. And because, and I think it's because it's, um, they're all referred to as, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Stevens. They're so rarely referred yes, okay. to by their Christian names. And then they even have, you know, Mary and Dick, those very like reader names. They, Do you are, know what like, mean? they are like learning to read names, aren't they? That's they a are. Really good point. And... <laughs> What's, yeah. And what's fantastic about that is that it pulls you in in this really unique way where you you get so comfortable within this world that feels like very simplistic and very recognisable. But at the same time, you get deeper and deeper into the layers of these people's psych- self-conscious and their, and their psyches in a way they're not even aware of. You also, know? Sheriff spends a lot of those hundred pages dotting backwards and forwards. So you know a lot before the family arrives on holiday, which is where the quote-unquote action starts. Mm. Um, but you know a lot about their backstories. Yeah. You know, one of the things I think is really um, worth pointing out, which didn't occur to me the first time I read this novel, but has subsequently occurred to me, is when, what is the September that is being referred to in the title? Well, obviously, it's, the, it's an actual fortnight in September, mm. so it's not, you know, that's straightforward. But I think September is also a metaphor here for something coming to an end. Yeah. Right. Who, go, who goes on their right, holiday so first, in September? First you know? of all, it's that, well, we used to, to save a bit of money. Oh. My family, this is incredibly evocative of the beach holidays that we would have in the 1970s. See, that hadn't even occurred to me, of course. And we lived yeah. in Croydon in this area. Uh, so we used to come out of the suburbs. We used to drive. We didn't go mm. on the on the train. But but we would have these beach holidays, which were recognised. They are recognisable to me reading this novel. Mm. The idea that you were there for a fortnight, you go slightly out of season to save a bit of money. Mm. Which so is something that I can't believe that didn't even occur to you because you're so aware of their economic situation and, and yeah. the socioeconomic situation, you are aware of how much it costs to get a beach hut and whether they should buy one with a balcony or not. And like the smallest decisions impacts their, you know, fortnightly budget or whatever that they've been scrimping and saving for all year, which makes everything they do so relevant and so magical and so... Also, this idea of September, it's the September in the life of this family. That yeah. the children are growing up and are nearly grown up. That... Uh, the parents are moving from late middle age into old age, that we have joined them for this holiday, which it is implied will be the last one. And never they specifically said. Yeah, yeah. They don't know it when they go on the holiday, but the, the, everything that reads into it, and certainly an event happens near the end of the book regarding the uh, sea view, which is the um, B&B that they, they have stayed in, mm. that implies that perhaps... They won't be able to go back again. Yeah. So 
So there's something very elegiac about the book as well, I think. You know, the, the, the idea that Dick, the son, is unhappy in his job, which his father has set up for him, and is looking to f- make a change, a dramatic change. Mm. Uh, Mary, the girl, dis- has discovered boys, discovers boys yeah. on this holiday. And it's implied, not in a, not in a negative way, but... That she she won't be held by the bounds of the family holiday in the same way. There, there's this with me. I I love Mary and Dick. We do spend I think more of the time in Mister and Missus Stevens' point of view. But when we get Mary and Dick, it's so well observed and to use a kind of a lazy word, so timeless in that like oh the you know the boy who realizes that life isn't exactly how school is and the girl who realizes that yeah. you know she's be- she's becoming pretty and she's becoming noticeable and making friends and everything. It, it's very very timeless. But this thing where Mary meets a girl on the beach one day who she's kind of noticed before and like she seems a bit cool or whatever um, and she asks her to go out that night for a stroll for like an hour in the evening yeah. and it's and even in you know 1931 this is not a big ask of your parents to say you know I've met this girl down by the beach I want to go for a stroll with her this evening but she's so afraid and they're all so afraid of rupturing this self contained little hermetically sealed bubble that is the family, you know? Yeah, they're very mindful of one another's uh, sensitivities and feelings. Yeah. That's one of the things that's really moving, I think, in the book, is the impression you come away with. They are, they're like a real family yeah. who love one another and are frustrated with one another and don't want to kind of pull apart, but are going to perhaps have to... Um, face up to the fact that you can't stay still. You know, yeah. you, you've got to keep moving. And they're all they're all intrinsically, with the exception of maybe Dick, are intrinsically very shy people. And they're so aware oh, yeah, of one yeah. another's dignity. You know, there's this bit at the beginning where Mr. Stevens is sitting next to a woman who has her baby and the baby keeps reaching for his hat. And everyone's a bit like, not in a way that they're frightened of him, they're frightened that they're going to anger their father. But they're just so, they, no one wants to mention that, like, this man who takes his dignity so incredibly seriously that we'll, we'll have to acknowledge that a baby's taking the piss out of him. <laughs> a baby, <laughs> you but know? Po- but his dignity, that's a, such a re- great point. His dignity is constantly under assault in the novel. Yeah. It's one of the things that, that, you know, you have the backstory about him tendering his resignation at the football club and having it to his horror, having the resignation accepted. Yeah. You have this oh, incredible Mike Lee-like scene of social awkwardness where they accidentally bump into a client of Mr. Stevens's firm and are invited to his very nouveau yeah. riche house to yeah. take tea while they're on holiday. And that is an absolutely brilliant, that's like something out of E.F. Benson. It's a dance of awful manners, of trying yeah. not to say the wrong thing, imply the wrong thing, overstep the mark, not be grateful enough, be too grateful. I mean, it's, it's wonderfully, wonderfully done. Right? This horrible moment where they go to this tea and he and Mr. Stevens is like... My children are attractive and charming. My wife is nice. Everyone's behaved beautiful. Ernie Ernie hasn't done anything annoying. He's his <laughs> child, so he's always a live wire. Um, and then he's about to leave and his client turns to him. I can't remember his name, but it's something like Mr. Montgomery or it's something. Montpellier Montgomery. It's, yeah, it's like, and it's again, the puffin reader, rich person's yeah, name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he says, well, how much do you think this house costs then? And... 
Mr. Stevens is like, he's just doing this kind of mental, this thing of like, I want to give a good guess because I don't want to look like an idiot. However, this man, I can't, I don't want to undersell it or yeah, oversell it right. or, and he's he's like just sweating. Like every, it's like you know, that scene in Inside Out where everyone, it's just alarms going off in his brain of everyone, everyone is manning every control station. It's like, what, what do we do? And eventually he says, like kind of he quadruples the cost of his own house. And he says, you know, 3,000 yeah, pounds. Yeah. And then Mr. Montpellier thinks this is the funniest thing he's ever heard. And like that's, and that's going to be the lasting memory in Mr. Stevens' mind of that day, you know? Yeah, and that's, you see what I mean as well? The idea that he, that he's living on the edge of his wits. Yeah. <laughs> even, even in a, an otherwise benign social setting. You know, what does it say about his family, him? What does it say about how he yeah. feels about work? Because there he's got issues with work that we discover as well in the course of the book. Yeah. You know, and the that- idea that the holiday is both a break from these people's everyday troubles and, yes. and an opportunity to reflect upon them yes. simultaneously. That is a really brilliant thing in the novel, which feels very, feels very accurate to me. The idea and also the way... Time runs out when you're on mm. holiday. That's, mm. that's, that's conveyed really well here. There's a wonderful section where, where he writes about the idea that you're sort of cavalier with your time in week one. Mm. But then when you've turned the corner into week two, suddenly you begin to, there's a sort of creeping self-consciousness into this is me on the XX date of my holiday yeah. doing this thing. Is it appropriate when there's XX number of days left? I thought that was that's done so skillfully. And the first time I had ever read, I think I really about the deep internal machinations that happens to people on holidays, and that realization that you're like everyone thinks the exact same way about their own holiday. These things. I once heard the statistic that you're actually more likely to run into your neighbour on holiday than you are on your own street, <laughs> because or something something like that. It was some study that somebody did that like the um, the number of people that people visit. The number of places that people visit that speak English, that do this, mm. do that, that check all these boxes, um, are so that you are more likely to run into your old school friend in Borneo mm. yeah. than you are yeah, in yeah, London. Yeah. And sorry, I've forgotten the point I was trying to make. Oh, yes. So it's a thing of everyone thinks that their holiday is a unique experience where they, they, um, experience their dream self of like here's what I would do if I were rich and it's unique to me unique to my desires what I like that I've created because of my desires and actually we are all experiencing holidays in the same way (laughs) Mr. Stevens has this thing uh, where he he likes to quietly go to a pub called the Cumberland is it called the Cumberland it is the most transgressive thing he does most nights while he's on holiday and he only goes for an hour yeah and he doesn't get drunk and he talks about how the previous year he'd made three or four friends. Mm. Like you do on holiday. I remember making friends as a kid. You make very good friends and then that's it. It's like a holiday friendship. It lasts mm. one week, two weeks, whatever. But he says, uh, Sheriff says of him at one point, he wouldn't, this is something he'd never do at home. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's, it's the idea, though he could, that nobody would object. Mm. What you're saying about your dream self this gentleman's dreams are relatively small dreams. They are, they are not ambitious dreams. The genius in the writing is not to pass judgment on them, or if judgment yeah. is passed, it is, it is 
generous of spirit, as I say, mm. that Sheriff, li- you like spending time with these people, with this family, because Sheriff likes writing about them. And he doesn't like writing about them because he thinks they're silly, though he's not blind to their foibles. Mm. It's not like reading, uh, admittedly, a very funny book. It's not like reading The Diary of a Nobody by the Grossmiths, mm. where there is a, a part of the engine of The Diary of a Nobody is a kind of compassionate snobbism towards Puta and and his lower middle class ways. This is a much gentler read. You know, it's funny, you were saying about terms on book covers that would put you off. Mm. Gentle would make me run away. Yes, absolutely, yeah. And yet here, that's what this book is. It's not... It seems to me to be gentle in the way it treats these little foibles of human nature, but not in how they're presented to you, the reader. That he's he's the sheriff is saying to you, come on, these are nice people. These yeah, are nice yeah. people. Why not write about them? Because there are a lot of, and I'm thinking specifically of like, um, I, I went through a phase in my early twenties of being very into the sort of contemporary short story writers from the fifties, the sort of the Richard oh, yeah. Yates and the kind of thing. And it would always be about like, oh, someone with their tiny dream, and even that dream gets dashed, and kind of look how pathetic they are. And I'm I'm yeah. a writer who lives in New York and fuck everybody else kind you know of thing. What? You know, I I. I have discovered as a result of doing Backlisted that there are types of prose or types of writing that I struggle with. Because mm. they're like for everybody, right? We've all got different things that we yeah, like sure. and dislike, right? I do struggle a bit with the exactly the perspective you've just described of mm. the New Yorker yeah. fine writer. I love the prose. I have no mm. issues with the prose. But, you know, I, I, there'll be, there'll be pe- people clutching their pearls when they hear me say this. But there is a kind of uh, aggressive this... literary distancing yes. that you find in, say, Cheever or you find in, I'm not going to say William Maxwell because I love William Maxwell, mm. but there is a kind of strand. James Salter, oy, you know, <laughs> there's a kind of, a kind of aggressive uh, superiority, even though I don't think it's intended to be that. And it's it's that kind of thing. It's like just because you've noticed that your older working class mother ho- hoards cans of peaches in her pantry doesn't mean you have to be a bitch about it. Yeah, know? there you go. <laughs> right. And yeah. So what is the? I'm going to ask you a question. What? Mm. How do you think Sheriff gets away with it? Because I think this is a. Re- I think this is a much tougher book to write yes. than it is to read. Yes. Because you're he's constantly walking the line between saying here are these people. Uh, we are going to treat them fairly. I am going to lead you towards judgment, but I am not going to make the judgment for you. Yeah. It's much harder to do than than it sounds, actually. It's, it's such a simple and very stupid answer, but I think it is the fact if they were going on this holiday, and it said at the beginning of the book that Mrs. Stevens isn't even totally sure she enjoys this holiday. Mm. Um, and she's a bit, and she's, every year she's asked by her neighbours, did you have a nice time? And she says, lovely. And if she had ever, like, if she'd ever like brought that inward, she would realise that she's actually frightened of the sea and she doesn't like playing yeah, cricket they, with they the children on the beach. They say she's frightened of the sea. That's right. Yeah. That's absolutely right. Yeah. And, and, and even there's a, there's a bit where they look, they, they're crossing the road and they look around and they can't see their mother and they all experience this moment of panic where they're like, 
we've really been awful to her all day in the way that you like families of children can be awful to their mother because their your dad is scary and your mom is the caregiver and you just kind of um stigmatize her in this weird way and we've all done it but like there's this thing of like because if it had, if it was just that just people who hated holidays and being by the sea yeah but the fact that they all are willing to make these sacrifices for one another for one another's enjoyment and that they do there are foibles there are resentments there are things but like they love being together and i think that's what makes it not pathetic not you know god look at this you know playwright writing about ordinary people kind of thing it's it is that that yeah. depth of love there's also a bit here i'm just going to read this a little bit about bogner because uh, i think he in addition to what you just said i think he also is brilliant at presenting bogner as both a kind of uh, a physical place but he doesn't really linger on that. He's much mm. more interested in presenting what Bogner means to the characters. Yeah. Right. So it's almost like it's the the holiday. The holiday is the state of mind mm. that they adopt once they're in the physical location. Um, the sun had returned, and Bogner seethed with a restless, bustling energy. The high tide had driven the holidaymakers with deck chairs into a solid mass upon the narrow strip of shingle that remained above the sea. Soon the tide would turn, and as the sea gave back the gleaming sands, the people would gradually spread out again. At present, they were as tightly packed on their strip of beach as the blight upon Mr. Stevens's beans. <laughs> you cannot help feeling a little out of it when first you mingle with them. Lots of them have probably only just arrived, like you, and yet you feel you are the only novices amongst crowds of sun-baked veterans. It is far better not to take buckets and spades, yachts, or even kites on your first day's visit to the sands. It is best simply to stroll along, to get your sea legs and look at things. But overall, a spirit of joyful, unrestrained freedom. There were no servants, no masters, no clerks, no managers, just men and women whose common profession was holiday maker. Round pegs resting sore places that had chafed against the sides of tight square holes, and pegs that had altered their shape through softness or sheer willpower so that they felt no aching places on their sides. No one cared who their fellows were. If they smiled, you smiled. If they spoke, you spoke. Spoke of the things around you and not of the things that lay behind or ahead. Mm. It may have been a tax collector who helped up that child and gathered its seaweed back into its bucket. The father who thanked him may have been in the courts a week ago because he could not pay. But who cares at the sea? Who cares? I mean, that I get little goosebumps yeah. just reading that. I, it's so wonderful. And it's, it's how they're all able to be their sort of best selves by the sea. And there's that thing where... Mr. Stevens is very proud of a friend he made the previous year who is, um, I think, a lord or something. And yes, a friend, right. One of his friends, his friend, holiday friend, from the friend, pub. his friend from the pub. And he gets a letter inviting him to tea that he never, that he's delighted to receive but never accepts because yes, he's right. waiting to be the kind of man who can go to a lord's house and then reciprocate the invitation, which, which is one of the tragedies of the book, will never happen. Uh, because he sort of has this moment. And what, what I find really interesting, specifically... Because there's an even gender split. I mean, we don't really count Ernie because he's a kid. And I kind of glanced past. <laughs> I kind of glanced past the Ernie moments a bit. Um, 
Because I think one of my things is I hate reading about children. I just well, for, I just, as you say, fortunately, Ernie doesn't get much, uh, much yeah. space on the page, does he? So, so we've got these um, this this young this young woman and this middle aged woman, and this young man, and this middle aged man, essentially, um, and both of the men are so good. And I and this is true of my experience of living with men generally, is that men are incredibly good at um, mentally compartmentalizing their lives. And so they're able to go like, when I go to the sea, I will go for a long walk yeah. and I will sort okay. out this thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what drew me to Dick so much, actually, uh, is he has this, he's deeply depressed in his uh, in his new job, which is at a, a second rate stationer, yeah. is that his you know, father had pretended was a first-rate one. And he's sort of looking at, um, he's kind of functions as the reader a little bit, Dick does, because he's looking at the kind of mediocrity and the shabbiness of everything around him and is he feels deeply critical of it. But before Dick can be, become that New York writer who writes cruelly mm-hmm. and with distance, right. he says something, and it's honestly underlined so, so many times, he had got the wrong idea about this loyalty business Loyalty didn't mean a passive cringing to something second rate. It meant a tremendous determination to raise the things he was connected with to a finer level. That's really good, it's right? It's so beautiful. It's really good. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Can I say a bit about Sheriff? Because I find yeah. him totally fascinating, right? I didn't really know much about him. I knew his name because, obviously, he is the author of the very famous, still-studied play, recently made into a film, again, Journey's End, about mm. the First World War. I hadn't realised that Sheriff had... He had a... He's... He is... If he didn't exist, okay. I would have made him up as a sort of... Dri- <laughs> Dream example of, of, of a writer who is the very opposite of Bloomsbury, right? Right. So he's born in 1896. He grows up in Kingston-on-Thames. Uh, he's the son of an insurance clerk. And when he goes out to work, age 20, uh, no, 18, he goes to work in his father's office. So there's elements so, of autobiography yeah. in the fortnight in September. He fights in the First World War. Uh, he serves as an officer in the 9th Battalion of the East Surrey Regiment and he's severely wounded at Passchendaele in 1917. He comes back and for the next 10 years he works in the same insurance office. So right and through from the end of the First World War through till 1928 he works as an insurance adjuster. And then Journey's End is staged for one night only Mm. with... 
a 21-year-old Laurence Olivier. No. Shut up. In the lead role. And it becomes an overnight sensation, right? Becomes a huge hit. And do you know what he does next, what Sheriff does next? This is the point where things get really... Okay, I'm excited. (laughs) He does not resign his job. Uh-huh. He stays working in the insurance office, and then in 1931 he resigns, and he goes to Oxford University, where in his late 30s he takes a degree in English literature. Oh. Right? Okay. And in 1937 he founds a scholarship for boys from grammar schools to be able to go to Oxford University. Oh, so he is the real thing, right? Already I can see yeah. you. You're misting up and I'm misting yeah. up. I think, wow, this is amazing. These are... He publishes three novels in the 1930s. The Fortnight in September 1931, a huge bestseller. Like he says in the beginning, of the, in the introduction, yeah. which is taken from his autobiography, he doesn't really know why. <laughs> he, he, uh, nobody seems to know why. It's sold really well in America. It's sold well around Europe. This little story about a little family going on their holiday in which nothing happens. Big bestseller, right? He publishes another novel in 1936 called Green Gates, which is about an elderly couple moving from South London to the suburbs of Metroland. Mm-hmm. Again, if you if you read The Fortnight in September and you enjoy it, mm. then read Green Gates. And then in 1939, he writes a science fiction novel called The Hopkins Manuscript. And that's terrific as well. It's one of the most eccentric science fiction novels science, I've ever he goes read. To, he goes from The Fortnight in September yep. to science fiction. Yep. Wow. Uh, and then from 1939 onwards, he then... So he's been a, a, a massively successful playwright. He's been a massively successful novelist. He's been to Oxford University. And in the 30s and 40s, he becomes an Oscar-winning screenwriter. No. He writes the scripts for, amongst others, Goodbye Mr. Chips, Carol Reed's film Odd Man Out, the Oscar-winning Mrs. Miniver. I've seen that, yeah. The Dam Busters. He writes the script for The Dam Busters. Oh, wow. All these classic British and American films. Then... In the sixties, oh, no. in the sixties and seventies, he starts writing novels for children, uh, and he publishes an autobiography uh, with the perhaps t- tell-all title "No Leading Lady." In 1968, he lives with his mum in Kingston upon Thames, and he dies in 1975. He has the most—I mean, I know I've given you the long-winded version, yeah. but I find that endlessly fascinating his whole career runs contra to most literary careers of the 20th century right he he sets out to do something out of out of a very lower middle class background Mm. without many advantages that a lot of the writers in this period had which is why we know about them in addition to their talent and he reinvents himself over and over and over again it's kind of like, imagine if uh, Lin-Mel, Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote Hamilton, made Hamilton. There you go. Then went to school. <laughs> and then just, no, thank you, Disney. I'm going I, to school. Ab- absolutely right. That, that he has, and what I think of his work that I'm familiar with, I mean, I've seen some of those films, Journey's End, I know, mm-hmm. I've read these novels. They seem to all have that thing that I've talked about in relation to the fortnight in September. They have a real belief. It's a kind of up with people. Yeah. thing that he's got yeah. going on. It's a generosity of spirit uh, and a generosity of how he presents you with these characters that he wants to say, you know, this guy, he's, 
he works in an office, you work in an office, yeah. I worked in an office. Maybe he's a bit boring, maybe you know, he's a bit awkward, I, I, maybe I'm he's a bit, a bit shy. Boring, you can be a bit boring. Yeah, but, we can all be a bit fucking but boring. But within that, look at the turmoil. It's what you were saying about, wait, that's how I feel. Yeah, yeah. He's just got that kindness. But not kindness in a kindness makes it sound awful, right? It Gen- does. It makes it sound so trite. Kind, all these things. And it's not corny. And no. it's, you know? No, it is simply approaching it with a with an observant eye but a really supportive view of human nature. Yeah. And I think that's why I find this book really did you find it uplifting or melancholy or It's interesting that you asked that because I had read a little bit about it and I I'd seen an interview with him that said, "Oh, uh, I I got a letter from a girl in New York who reads this every year because she finds it so comforting and she finds it so blissful and she lo-, and like yes, like the kind of the beautiful jolly descriptions of everyone like getting a bag of donuts and playing cricket on the beach is lovely but I found there is a real shadow to it you know it's that Definitely. long cold shadow at the end of a summer's day isn't it of of yeah. knowing how much anxiety lives within these people knowing that this is just a also it's like that thing of they go on the same holiday every year anyone who goes on the same holiday every year says the same thing about it which is it's easy you know, it's easy mm. and we don't have to think too hard and we like it there and people know us and it's nice. And you don't judge that. And But then you think all the micro anxieties that happen within their minds of like, well, what if we don't get, what if what if A, then not B? What if B, then not C? This constant thing of, so I think there is a shadow to it. It's also, not all yeah. lightness, you and know? And the shadow is change is coming, right? Yes. There's all sorts of things implied in the last few chapters which indicate for reasons within the family and uh, reasons to do with where they're staying and, you know, changes of circumstance or whatever, this might not be repeatable, that, no. that this might be it. And I find that very um, – you're, you're right. I mean, the, the reason why I felt this was a good book to talk about as well for us was, you know, this has been republished by Persephone. And, of course, Persephone, most of the authors that – Persephone republished our novels by women. And they yeah. tend to be novels, as this is, which on one level would work in a kind of, um, and I use this term not uh, pejoratively, but in, it, in its, because it's accurate and academically robust, mm. uh, in a middle brow way. You know, mm. I, this is something I've written about quite a lot. You know, Persephone, Persephone is very interested in writers like. Uh, Dorothy Whipple, Margarita Lasky, you know, which in some ways would have been written off as middle brow, mm. boots lending library, women's novels. Mm. And what Nicola and her team there at Persephone is so, have been so good at doing is pointing out to you, well, things can be simultaneously that, but they can also have edge or structure yeah. or shade or subtext to them. And it seems to me... Which is the point of this podcast. Yeah. Which it seems to me that's exactly what why Sheriff fits yeah. their list. Yeah. Because he, he is not um, an intellectual fellow traveller uh, in the sense of a, a Bloomsbury author, but he was published by Victor Galantz. And unless we, unless we forget, Victor Galantz was a left-leaning publisher, mm. the publisher of Orwell, uh, um, uh, you know, The Road to Wigan Pier. There is a, there's a, a left-leaning social interest mm. in the lives of quote-unquote ordinary people. Uh, and again, within Persephone's 
uh, publishing project, so many of the books that they've republished are about... Uh, there's a terrific book called uh, One Fine Day by Molly Panter Downs about a day in an English village after mm. the war, which similarly to Fortnight in September is kind of a little survey of the different types of people who live in that community just for a yeah. day. I think you presume when you see things like that, um, books that have this conceit or this um, facsimile around them that are like, and it's only about one day or and I and you you assume that it's going to be incredibly heavy going, don't you? Mm. Do you assume that when you when you see something that has a conceit like that? Um, I find the folk. Well, I don't want to say about one day. I I find. I think as a writer, if you set yourself a structure of that kind that the reader can understand immediately, it can trap you. Mm. Uh, and you have to use certain tricks to uh, Which is not... generally flashback and memory and people thinking about the traumatic thing that happened to them during the war that they're still not over, you know, which is I what was, I would assume would happen. I was quite surprised with the fortnight in September. Again, not really any spoilers that it ends at the end of the holiday. It doesn't end when they get back home again. Mm. So it's taken 100 pages to get them from Dulwich to Bognor. Yeah. Uh, but then you, you leave them as they are waving goodbye to the landlady. And I was, I've thought a lot about that. And I've thought, what is the effect of that? That you don't get to see them back in that domestic environment that he's been so... Um, punctilious in building up for mm. you. It's because he said he said what he's got to say about them. You know, as you suggested, they are most fully alive as a family, perhaps for the last time mm. when they're on that holiday. And there's that thing as well, and that's so beautifully done. Of um, so. Uh, on the on the eve of their last evening, or, or or quite close to it, the landlady who is aging qu- quite rapidly, and um, you know the the boarding house, which used to be kind of a an economical option, is now becoming just a, a shabby one. Um, and she says, you know, would you like to stay another day for free? And they go, but you know, people come right after us. Don't you have more guests? And she reveals that no, she does not have more guests, and in fact, the guests have been very low this season. And they decide that, like, well. Fuck it. <laughs> we'll have another yeah, day. We'll have the extra day. And they have the extra day. And again, it's this kind of this low thrumming anxiety. Of it. It's nice to have but another. Also, it's trying for something that yeah, it is over, you know. But also, that is actually, and this, this, if, this is how Mark of how brilliantly this is done in this book. That small thing, that extra day, mm. the initial kind of panic where they have to reorganize. And write out a list of the eight or nine things they'll have to do yeah. becomes almost like a a moment of revelation or a, a, a like a, a last guttering of the candle, like a moment of spontaneity for them all. Yeah, where they're all together. And as I keep wanting to say to you, for the last time, we don't know it's for the last time, but it's like it's like they've been given a special thing that they'll always yeah. remember this. Do you remember that holiday? That we got time the extra we day. did it, we got the extra day. And also when the landlady tells Mrs. Stevens that, when Mrs. Huggett tells Mrs. Stevens that, there is a brilliant moment where much to Mrs. Stevens' horror, Mrs. Huggett bursts into tears. 
right? Yeah. Where and and it's described in quite unsentimental terms. It's it's how embarrassing it's, it is yes, and how embarrassed she is for, for all her. Of them, and, right. Yeah. That she's also she's already slightly nonplussed by uh, by Miss um, Mrs. Huggett's taking her into a confidence, and then that becomes this unwanted intimacy. Yeah. That she then has to parlay into this. Um, Extra day. It sounds nothing as we say. Yeah. This extra day. <laughs> Just, uh, How but, can it bear? But in all the, the context weight, of but, in the world of this book that you are reading, it is like no, we don't do things that aren't planned because you feel like you're in the Stevens family by the end of it. Yeah, you and do. we we don't do things do. that aren't planned in this family. Did you feel so, I very rarely feel so. You know, it's the sort of thing yeah. that people say about books. Very where they go, Oh, I say. wanted to spend more time with them. I felt sorry yeah. to say. I felt really sorry when this book ends. Yeah, I really want to spend more time with them. They're even quite annoying. <laughs> <laughs> You know, they're yeah, quite annoying, annoying people and to boring. Hang out with. But then again, as you said, so am I sometimes. So are we all? So are we all? Right. So um, I don't that. know. I, 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 it seems one of those things. You know, it's the sort of book that you talk about on here and we talk about on Backlisted, where, as I said, I don't know anyone who's read it who hasn't been moved by it and struck by it and thought to themselves, and frustrated by no it. Book, you know, there's no other. Why there's? Why is there no other book no, like this? Nothing. And um, and and yet these things kind of recede into the background, and kind of wait for readers to find them again. And this was out of print for years. The fortnight, and still not easy to get either. You're not going to really find this in a Waterstones. Like I, I had to get it on Kindle because it was so hard to find. Persephone do publish it in one of their classic. Uh, you know, most Persephone books have the kind of grey livery and the flowered end mm. papers. They do publish it in kind of an illustrated cover to try and get it out into Waterstones and into mass market editions. But it is in print. That's the good thing. You can get it on the Kindle. You can get it from Persephone. You can probably get it via your independent bookseller. And so, you know, I'm really, really pleased that these things are available to read again at the moment. And I'm so pleased that you've brought it in today and that... This can. I'm, I really, really hope that this makes its way into people's hands again because I think the readers of contemporary romance or comedy or whatever will find so much to love in this. Um, unfortunately, we have to wrap it up. Although I could honestly stay here for the forty-five minutes. Um, Andy Miller, you're uh, the host of Backlisted, and would you, is there anything else you'd like to plug at this time? Uh, yes, there is something. Yeah. Although this episode might not go out in time, but it doesn't matter if it did, if it okay. didn't. Okay. Okay. So I am um, taking part in a gig at the Hundred Club in London on oh, wow. Monday, the twenty third of September, mm-hmm. where me and some friends will be playing the whole of the Beatles' Abbey Road album <gasps> from beginning to end. Uh, to mark 50 years of that since that LP was released. Uh, it was released on the 26th Wait, so are you, are, are you playing it as in, you're playing it on I'm a guitar? I'm not just putting the record on. I am singing and playing the piano. No. I am. Which Beatles do you am. identify as? Uh, I, uh, do I identify yeah. as? I'm, uh, on this case, I'm uh, poly, uh, vitalic. I'm, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm, poly vitalic! <laughs> I'm singing most of the leads. So if you yeah. enjoyed this podcast, but you want to hear me singing uh, me, Mr. Mustard, you can do that. Uh, but we're doing it to raise money for literacy charities. Um, Fabulous. You can find us. Uh, we got tickets under the name Shabby Road because that's the name of our group. Uh, you can donate to our Just Giving page. We've raised a couple of grand so far. We're aiming to get to five grand 
for and obviously this is to help people read and not to gratify my uh, ego <laughs> yeah. uh, by packing out the hundred club so so uh, that, that sounds fantastic shabby road um that is my my favorite plug that generally people talk about some old book they wrote but uh, this is my uh my favorite plug i've ever received on here that's fantastic hooray hooray thank you so much andy this has been fantastic thank you This has been Sentimental Garbage, and I've been Caroline O'Donoghue. You can follow me on Twitter at Zaraline, that's C-Z-A-R-O-L-I-N-E, or email me by the podcast at ZaralineO'Donoghue at gmail.com. This has been a Justice for Dumb Women podcast. Thanks to Harry Harris for the jingle, Gavin Day for the logo, and Acast for the recording space. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 